We're going to be in Second Kings 6 and 7 today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity and the privilege that we now have of getting into your word. And as we look at Elisha and we look at some of the people that he interacted with in, in these chapters, help us to understand why you wanted us to know these things. And as we learn some of that historical information, Lord, we also ask that you'd help us to be able to bridge that gap from the history to the personal. And may we <clears throat> learn the truths that you have for us here today. In your name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you've ever studied much about World War II, and especially about D-Day, the invasion of France by the Allies, um, you know that there's a lot of energy, a lot of work went into not only planning the invasion for D-Day, but also for keeping a secret where it was going to be. Because if the Germans knew where we were going to land, they could just be there waiting, and that was something we didn't want to have happen. So there were all, all kinds of things that were done to disguise and hide the place that we were actually going to make that happen. And so there was there were people who were working as spies and behind the scenes in ways that uh, are incredible when you start hearing and reading about them. <clears throat> now, Elisha was playing that kind of a role for the people of, of, of Israel and the northern kingdom in particular. And we'll see as we go through the chapter, that's what he was doing. He was ruining the surprise because God was informing him of where exactly the enemy was going to be. And so that just kind of made it very hard for the enemy to do what they wanted to do, which is always a good thing if you're a prophet of God. Anyway, so just kind of to review very quickly the things that we've seen. There's, we've been in a section of Second Kings where it's basically about Elisha and all the things that he did because God was working in him and all the people whom he touched as a result of the things that God did through him. Um, go ahead and put that chart up there, if you would, Andrew. <clears throat> God cares for the desperate. We saw that in chapter 4, where there was a young widow of one of the prophets, and she had two children who were going to be taken into slavery because of debt that they had. And Elisha performs a miracle, and not only sets her free from that debt, but also her children don't have to be sold into slavery at all. And the second one we find from a... A woman, and we talked about her in, in the last few weeks, how she was very wealthy, provided a place for Elisha to stay when he was passing through and traveling in that area. And eventually she had a son, miraculously, that, that uh, God provided her. And then the son dies, and Elisha comes and raises him to life. So we, we've got God caring for the desperate, caring for the heartbroken, caring for the hungry. Remember we talked about this, how there was a stew that had been made with poison gourds, and uh, people would have gotten sick and some died, but Elisha fixed the soup. And because it was a famine, they couldn't just throw it away, so that's why he fixed the stew. And then someone brought bread. It wasn't enough for everybody, and Elisha said, just pass it out. It'll be enough. And sure enough, there was plenty for everybody that needed it, and there were leftovers as well. That was Elisha and God working in order to feed the hungry. And then last week, we talked about Naaman, uh, the head of all of the Syrian army, who had leprosy and how God reached out and touched Naaman and, and healed him physically, but also showed him who God really was and had him see that and respond to that. <clears throat> That's the last we hear of Naaman. We don't ever hear of him again. But we hear of him in that whole sense of being humble and, and doing what he was supposed to do once God really got a hold of his heart. So <clears throat> how much time goes by between that event with Naaman, who was the 
general in chief of all the all the Syrian army, and this next section where they're warring with the people of Israel, or at least having skirmishes all over the place. We don't know. We know that he's not leading them anymore, uh, or that would be something he he wouldn't do. And so he may have retired. He may have passed away at this point. We don't know. He's just not on, not in the book anymore. So verse eight is where we're going to pick it up. <clears throat> The king of Aram was at war with Israel. Now, this was not a all of the soldiers and all of the armies coming face to face and battling each other. This was more like skirmishes that took place. They would go in and try to take over a town or go over and take all of the plunder from another area. So it was that kind of a thing. And it says here, <clears throat> he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. So they'd pick a place. They knew where they were going. They'd pick a place on the map. And then verse 9 is really interesting. So he's talking with his, with his leaders of the army. And then verse 9, immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel. Don't go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize there. So it didn't matter what they did. didn't matter where they tried to go in order to ambush the people of Israel. God was sh- showing Elisha what would happen. Elisha would tell the king, and they made sure that none of the ambushes happened. They just didn't take place. Um, so the king of king of Aram <clears throat> probably was Ben Hadad at this point, um, although he's not named. He's really upset. He's accusing the people of his command of being traitors. And we see that in verse eleven. He says, "Who of you is a traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of, our, of my plans?" And one of them said, <clears throat> "Lord, Lord King, it's not us. It's Elisha the prophet." Now, how in the world he knows that Elisha the prophet is doing this is hard to speculate. But somehow, several of the officers knew that Elisha was somebody who was telling the king where to go and where not to go. <clears throat> and again, think about what's going on here. You've got, as you're going through, you're watching, if you want to go through and watch for the attributes of God, here you've got the omnipresence of God. How does, that, how does Elisha know? Well, God's right there. He's, he's hearing what's being said. And all he has to do is cue Elisha in on it, and Elisha sends the word to the people <clears throat> in Israel. And so the king then sends a command, go find Elisha, because we need to take care of this problem. In verse 13, um, he wants to send troops, and the report comes back while he's in Dothan. Go ahead and put that map up there, if you would, Andrew. Now, Aram, they've been setting stuff all over around the Sea of Galilee and other places in Israel, trying to attack Israel. But now this is where they're going. They're going to Dothan because that is where Elisha is at this point in time. He has a home there, or staying there anyway. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> um, let's, let's go ahead and keep moving, otherwise we're not going to get through <laughs> all of this stuff. Um, anyway, so that's when his servant gets up. It's not Gehazi at this point, we don't think, because Gehazi has got leprosy as a result of his disobedience. Um, and God judged him. So anyway, the servant gets up, he looks out, and they're surrounded. The whole town is surrounded by uh, horses and chariots, um, men who had come in the night and surrounded the whole town of Dothan. And um, <clears throat> he goes in and says, what are we going to do? In verse 16, Elisha says, don't be afraid. For there are more on our side than on theirs. Now, as he's as he's saying this, I'm sure the servant's going, what, are you crazy? I mean, I can count. There's you and me and some of the people in the town, and there's this whole army out there. And um, it's interesting, because at that point, um, Elisha prays. O oh Lord, <clears throat> verse 17, 
open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots. And um, I've never liked the renditions that people have of angels. Many times they're little cute, fluffy things and little clouds. And if there was going to be a rendition of, an, of a warrior, this is probably closer to the idea. But what happened is you've got flaming chariots, you've got angelic warriors of God all in protective mode so that nobody's going to get through them to Elisha. And that's the thing. We think that as we read this, it's like the army's out there surrounding, but then surrounding Elisha is the whole army of God. And they have to get through that before they can get to Elisha. And so I'm sure at that point Elisha's servant was feeling very good about the whole thing because nobody's going to touch them. It wasn't going to happen. So God's protection was in place. There's an implication here. And, and under that whole idea of, you know, there's more on our side, you've got the whole omnipotence of God and the power of God being displayed not only in the angels, but the fact that God is in charge of all of those things. And I can identify with Elisha's servant. I don't always see things through the eyes of faith that like I should. Uh, there are times when I don't see or understand at all what God is doing. And it isn't until after the fact that I can look back and go, oh, all right, now I get it. It makes more sense. Elisha's servants saw the Syrian army, and he was really upset. He thought, okay, this is it. You know, they were going to take Elisha, they were going to take me, and, and, and that's it. And yet you see that God's at work. Um, when Elisha prayed to have his eyes open, he wasn't praying that the angels would come. They were already there. He was praying that his eyes would be open so he could see what God had already put in place. And that's the important thing for us to remember. It wasn't like he was praying for, for God to send help. The help was there. He was just saying, Lord, would you make what you've already put in place visible to my servant so that he understands the confidence that I have in you as God. <clears throat> and so you've got all that going on. The, the angels are there protecting Elisha. Um, <clears throat> and... Just really quickly here, Elisha's servant learned several things here, I think. Okay, I'm going to just share these very quickly. Enemy armies are no problem for God. None. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He has no equal. There's nobody that can stand up to God or his, or his power. So the enemy armies are no problem. It doesn't matter. They could have brought a million soldiers. It still wouldn't have mattered. Because God has no problem with any kind of army like that. Second, God's army is not always visible. God's army is not always visible. Matter of fact, you know, I'm sure that God has protected me at various times because after I look back, I go and I go, wow, that was miraculous. But I didn't see any angel. I mean, I would love to have seen an angel, but maybe not. They scared everybody to death when they saw him. So, <clears throat> but you see what I'm saying? God is at work whether we see it or whether we don't. He is at work. And that's one of the things that, that happened in this case is that Elisha was fully aware. He may not have seen him, but he's fully aware God's at work. And when he said, hey, show him, God did show him, and his servant was able to see it. Another point, we are never outnumbered if God is on our side. And if we belong to him, God is on our side. And he's the omnipotent, he is the omniscient, you know, he is the everywhere present God of the universe. If that's the case, if we're with him and he's with us, we are outnumbering everybody just like that. 
because he's the one that can do anything because he has created it all. And when God is always victorious, um, many times it didn't look like it. The cross didn't look victorious at the time. When Jesus rose from the dead, and we look back on that cross, we go, wow, victory over sin and death, just like that. And so we don't always see it, but God is victorious. So since these things are true, we can, we can expect God to do some of this. I'm just kind of throw some of these out there. Since these things are true about God, um, we can expect forgiveness to be offered. God offers that forgiveness. So we can kind of enter into that, and we can offer forgiveness to others. And we can say to them, by the way, God will forgive you too if, if they haven't come to Christ yet. So forgiveness is, we can expect God's going to offer that. He's promised that. We can expect the second thing, lives to be changed. I mean, the gospel is a powerful thing. And when God gets a hold of somebody, it's amazing what God does through one person. Because that's who he is and that's what he does. We can also expect that fears are going to be calmed. Now, everybody's a little different. Some people are scared more than others. For me, it depends on the situation. There are some things that just literally make me want to go running anywhere but there. And there's many other things that scare others that I just stand and look at and go, oh, yeah, no big deal. So it isn't a matter of what may or may not frighten you. I think the reality is God is always victorious and he will calm our fears. Whatever we're scared about, we can come to him and say, Lord God, I need your help. I need your help. And then we can expect prayers to be answered. Now, it may be a no. It may be wait. But those are answers too. We can expect that because of God and who He is. So whatever we're facing, no matter how difficult or impossible it seems, if if we are His children, God says, I'm in control, I've got you, you don't need to worry, just relax because we're, we're going to take care of this. Um, fears, fears, frustrations, things that kind of get out of control around us and we don't know what's going to happen, we can just take a deep breath and say, okay, God knows how to calm all of the storms. The real physical storms on the Sea of Galilee were not an issue. And the storms that are going on in my life all around me are also not an issue for him. He can calm those storms. David said this in Psalm 34, 4-7, and David had all kinds of times when he was running for his life and all kinds of things going on with him. And <clears throat> he said this, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears in my desperation. I love that word because I sometimes I get desperate and I'm in desperation myself and wondering what's happening. David says, in my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my trouble. For the angel of the Lord is, is a guard and he surrounds and defends all who fear him. Now, he says, he saved me from all my troubles. Let me just say this very briefly, but... Sometimes when we pray and we're expecting Him to save us from our troubles, we want Him to make the troubles go away. But sometimes the way God saves us from our troubles is to give us the strength to walk through those with Him, to learn the lessons we're supposed to learn, and be able to, on the other side, look back and say, oh yeah, I made it because God was with me. So please understand when David says that, he's not saying, that's it, I pray and they're gone. Yeah, sometimes that's true. But sometimes it means, okay, he's with us and he'll strengthen us and he'll give us the grace to make it through those things. So let's move on to verse 18. <clears throat> so here, Elisha's up on the hill with his servant and the, the, the town. We don't know how big the town was. 
Um, but the Aramean army decides, okay, it's daylight, let's start advancing on this town and let's get our job taken care of. So as they're beginning to advance, and hundreds of them, maybe maybe thousands, we don't know, there's horses, there's chariots, and they're coming towards the city. And I love Elijah's prayer in verse 18. Oh Lord, please make them blind. What a great prayer. <laughs> so the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Now, here's where my imagination probably takes over and it shouldn't. Um, <clears throat> so you've got all of these people and they've got horses and they've got swords and spears and bow and arrows and all that kind of stuff and what, and they're blind. They're totally blind. So unless they're crazy, they immediately reined in and stopped. And now they're waiting to see what's going to happen. Can you see anything? No, I can't see anything. Can you see anything? No. Nobody can see anything. They're standing there. And then Elisha comes out and says, This is the wrong place. Let me take you where you need to go. Now again, my my imagination is wondering, how do you get, say there's a thousand of them, of these people from Syria to follow one person when they can't see? They're blind. And the only thing I can think of is they got a big rope and they all hung onto the rope or they hung onto the tail of the horse in front of them. I mean, who knows? But they, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Carol, Carol laughed. <laughs> but think about it. Here's a, here's a bunch of guys following Elisha for 10 miles until they get to Samaria. We're not told how, which in this case we had been, but it's been fun to speculate. So let's go ahead and put that map up there if you would. So they're going from Dothan to Samaria. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a well laid out road there. And however they did it, they followed Elisha all the way until they get into Samaria. They not only go to Samaria, they go through the big gates into the walled city. And that's when they stop. Okay. <clears throat> and at that point, Elisha prayed that God would restore their sight. Now, can you imagine? Okay, you're a soldier who went out to catch this Elijah guy, and you had an ambush ready to go. And now you're blind, and you're at the mercy of whoever it is that led you to wherever it is that you went. And your eyes open, you realize you're in the middle of Samaria, the capital of Israel. And 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 there you are, surrounded. I'm sure by this point by all kinds of soldiers from from uh, the, the Israelite army. And then the king says, hey, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And, <laughs> and Elijah, Elisha says, no, they're prisoners of war. We don't kill prisoners. And that was really the discussion that took place there. So what does he say in verse 22? Give them food and drink and send them home. So the king made a great feast for them and sent them home to their master. Now the result of all of this, look at what it says. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. <laughs> I mean, you send a bunch of people in to get one guy and they're all struck blind, then yeah, maybe you don't want to mess with him anymore. So they didn't for a period of time. Now, I find this an incredible conclusion to the story that here you've got uh, the army comes, Elisha prays, they're blind, they praise again, and, and um, then they send them home and there's peace with Syria for a number of years. We don't know how many. Um, what do we do when we face opposition? And it just kind of started, popped in my mind. Um, you know, this was opposition that, that Elisha was facing and God took care of in a very miraculous way. What about when we face opposition from a, from a neighbor maybe or, or a coworker, maybe a family member that just really hates us? We've, we've known some families where one, 
One of the siblings was picked up, picked out by one of the parents to be treated horribly. What do you do if that's you? What do you do if a coworker just really wants to get rid of you and can't stand having you around? How should we respond to that? How do we respond to difficulties and hard things that we do our very best and yet it doesn't change? What do we do? And Jesus said this in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That puts it in a whole different category, doesn't it? That puts it in the category of, okay, so now it went from being hard to being really hard. Pray for those who are against you. Pray for those who put you down. Pray for those who hate you for no reason. In your lifetime, you will run into some people who, if you are serious about your walk with the Lord, are going to hate you. They just are going to hate you. How we respond to those things is really important. Romans 12 says this. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And that's such a hard one because when someone treats us badly, we just want to lash out again back, don't we? You know, if we're honest. um, But Paul says, don't repay. Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, he's understanding that the other person may not want to have peace, but he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So you do your part to live at peace whether they do or they don't. And he says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. And if you ever read sections where God's wrath is turned loose on a group of people who deserve judgment, you realize that he'll do a much better job of it than we ever could have payback. So just let him take care of that. It says it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's exactly what Elisha did. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, and I think the whole idea of that is that you make them uncomfortable. They're, they've been horrible and they've been all of these other things and you continue to be kind. Oh, that's as uncomfortable as having coals burn out, put on your head sometimes. And then he says this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's one of those ones that's really hard. When you think about it, <clears throat> it's so easy to give in to hatred. It's so easy to give in to bitterness and anger. Those are things that are easy to do when we've been when we've been wronged. And sometimes we are wronged and we haven't done anything to deserve it. And those are the times when I think we need to say, Okay, God, you put it here. I'm not supposed to let this overcome me. So please, give me the ability to overcome with good what is happening so what are we supposed to do? Just kind of very quickly in bullet form. Pray for those that persecute you. Now, there are a couple ways you can do this. One is to say, okay, Lord, would you please just zap them? I've prayed that occasionally, but God never does. <clears throat> Maybe we pray, Lord God, I don't know why they're, they're going through this. I don't understand what damage has caused this kind of behavior on their part. Sometimes people are reacting out of their own deep hurt somewhere. If we understand that, we can pray for them. We're supposed to do what is right. And not just kind of, but do what is right. We're not supposed to take revenge. Let God take care of that if it has to happen. Feed your enemy. Kindness, other ways. 
And then overcome evil by doing good. Overcome evil by doing good. Seems like a really tough test, doesn't it? Overcome evil. How? Well, just by doing good. Many times it would be a whole lot easier to go out and have a real fight. But God is saying, no, leave me to do the fighting. You need to do what, what is good. I had a friend that I used to have a Bible study with in Detroit. And um, he worked for one of the big car companies. And he had a pretty decent position that he had. And with all, a whole bunch of stuff going on always in that city and, and in those companies, at one point he had two supervisors, two guys that were over him, who wanted to get rid of him. They could not fire him for cause. There was nothing he had done wrong. And he did his job honestly. He worked hard. He did everything he was supposed to do. So what they were trying to do was to treat him as bad as they possibly could and get him to react in some way. Then they could fire him. See, if they just laid him off, they were still then liable for all kinds of income and stuff. But if they could fire him for some kind of cause like that, and he said almost every day, one or both of them would come by and just harangue him and yell at him and holler at him. And one day he was standing there, there's other people on the line working around, and, and uh, this guy's just going at him really, really angry. And my friend turned around and said, <clears throat> I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. He said the guy just stopped. And he didn't know what to say at that point. He just walked away. I'm not saying that that cured everything. But you see what happens when you let God do what God can do. And we, we need to do what is good and respond with God's help. He didn't respond that way because he was such a great person. I mean, he was seething and angry and he would love to have struck back, but God was working in him. And so he was able to say, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lash out. Now, many of us face hard things all the time, but one of the things we always have to remember is that we're not alone. It may feel like it at times, because you look around physically and it's just you, but we're never alone. The presence of God is with us at all times. Is it easy to go through those kinds of things? No. But God still expects us to do what is right, not in our own strength and power. We can't do that. But in His strength and power. He gives us the ability to keep on going. So we can overcome evil with good, with the grace of God working through us. The next verse in the chapter, between verse 23 and verse 24, possibly a number of years go by, we don't know. And and on on some levels, that kind of thing drives me crazy, because I'd much rather have a timeline. But on the one, you know, here they, they all went back, they got fed and sent home. And then it says, sometime later... However, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army to besiege Samaria. Now, this is now the whole army that he has. Everybody, all the chariots, all the, all the cavalry, all the foot soldiers, everybody. And they come to the capital city, Samaria, and they surround it big time. I mean, you can't get anything in or out of the city of Samaria. That's the siege. So Samaria is going to live or die based on what they already have inside those walls. And so they're besieging Samaria, <clears throat> and um, it's so long, verse uh, 25, as a result of the great famine took place in the city, because they can't bring food in, they can't really grow food in the city, at least not in the quantities necessary. The siege <clears throat> lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver. In other words, 
an, an unclean animal, and the very worst part of that animal was selling for good money because at least you'd get something to eat. <clears throat> and a cup of dove's dung wasn't really manure. It was, a, it was a name that they gave to seed pods and other things that they would feed to animals. People were buying that to eat themselves. That's how bad it was. Um, so you've got this this whole thing surrounded. <clears throat> and, and so the king king is out walking around, I'm sure on the top of the wall of the city, or just walking around the town. And, and I'm not going to go into the details in this next section. I'll let you take that at home. But he overhears a discussion between two people. He understands cannibalism is what's going on here. And it strikes his heart um, because it's gotten that bad. That's horrible. Um, and he acts, he reacts with horror at the atrocity of cannibalism. And, and if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, what happens is that God says, if you continue to, re- to refuse to follow me and to obey me, at some point I'm going to just remove all of the, all the barriers. And wickedness will take its course. And way back in Deuteronomy, he said, then you will resort to cannibalism at that point in time. Because it's the only thing that you will have left. Now, I have a quote here that I really appreciate. A holy God was not inspiring such atrocities. And read it when you get home or whatever, and you'll see it's, it's hideous. But he had removed his restraint of evil and allowed human depravity to take its ugly course. So this is the result of the people of Israel turning away from God, turning to Baal worship. And if you know some of about Baal worship, What's being discussed here is not even all that bad compared to some of what they do in worship of Baal with the sacrifices of human beings. And so the king reacts to all of that. And in verse 31, he wants to um, kill Elisha because, of course, Elisha is to blame for all of this and his thinking. And so the king sends someone, Elisha's in the city, suffering the the same fate as everybody in the city. And... um, he sends someone to basically kill Elisha. Elisha knows that they're coming because God continues to tell him stuff. And he tells the guys in the room, just block the doors, don't let them in. And so the guy who was coming there to execute Elisha, banging away, he can't get in. And finally the king arrives, and um, <clears throat> verse 33, the king says, All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He said, The Lord's causing all this, or why should I... Why should I wait for him to do anything? Um, and on top of that, you're his, you're his servant. So Elisha replied, listen to the message from the Lord. And he tells him, tomorrow at this time, 24 hours from now, there'll be so much food that the prices will be cheap. Really, really cheap. Okay, so that's that's what happens. They don't kill Elisha. He, you know, the... And at that point, also, if you want to go back and read that section, it's, it's kind of fun. The um, the guard that had been, or the person had been sent there to, to execute Elisha says, that can't happen. Even if God opened up the heavens and dropped stuff on us, there's no way that, that that's going to happen. <clears throat> we won't have all that kind of food. Now, there's a change of scenery. You got all the people that was going on inside the walls, and now you've got four men that are on the outside of the walls. Okay, Starting in verse 3. Now there are four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here and wait to die? 
So they're saying, hey, you know what? This is where we always come to get help from the city because they couldn't live in the city. They had leprosy, so they lived probably somewhere nearby. There was a little place where they could they could live, and they would go to the city, and the people in the city would, would help to feed them because they knew these guys couldn't come in and couldn't buy things. Um, and so there was always some kind of a place where lepers would go near to the, to the cities or the towns. Um, <clears throat> so then in verse 5 and 6, that night they, they get they, they get up to the to the city and say, Hey, if we stay here, we're gonna die of starvation. Um, people inside are dying of starvation, so we're not getting any food there. Why don't we just go to the Syrian camp and surrender? If they kill us, they kill us, but at least at least we'll know. Okay, so they're gonna head on out to the Syrians camp. And um, <clears throat> you can go back and read all that. God did a miracle because what he did was the whole army from Syria all of a sudden, they're all, all of them are hearing the sounds, chariot wheels and horses' hooves and all that stuff, of what they think are two huge armies coming from two different sides to crush them in between. And um, they hear this, and they get more and more panicky, and, and they just they take off. They leave everything, and they run. And they run for a long ways, and all along the way, they're dropping things that they don't want to carry any longer, and so they leave a trail behind them of the stuff that they've left behind. Verse 8, when the men who, with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating, drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. <clears throat> Finally, they said to each other, and this is the key phrase, okay, they've got all they need. They've probably taken enough gold and silver to last them for a lot of years. They're full, and they say, this is not right. This is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. Now, that's an incredible statement to make. They're saying, hey, we've got this amazing, miraculous thing that God has done. If we don't go back and tell people, something's wrong with us. And and that's exactly what they're saying. This is not right. We can't just sit here and do this. Um, They've been spared, but there's a bunch of people who could be dying overnight in the city. And so they go back to the city, and they tell them, hey, this is what's going on. And the gatekeeper gets the king out of bed, and they make some decisions. Finally, they decide to send out, uh, I think it's four people on horses to see what, where that road goes. They're afraid that they're going to get out there, and that empty camp really isn't empty. They've just kind of gone out into the you know hiding places so that when the Israelites come to the camp, they'll come out and just capture all of them. And so that's, that was their thinking, and so they send out the scouts to go look at what's going on. Now the king doesn't believe this is really a good thing that has happened, and so he waits for the scouts to come back. And they discover the evidence of flight. Now, all the way to the Jordan River, from where they were, was 25 miles, and the, the men on horseback followed all the way down there, and they, the trail just kept on going, kept on going north. So verse 16, Then the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the Aramean camp. So it was true. Six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver, and twelve quarts of barley were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. And that's an important statement, because Elisha is the one who said, tomorrow there's going to be so much food that it'll be cheaper than you've seen in a long, long time. And so sure enough, that next day, just as the Lord had promised. Verse 17, the king appointed his officer to control the traffic at the gate. 
He said, what happened when this man said, this can't happen? Elisha said, you'll see it, but you won't get to eat any of it. That's what he told him. So there's a prophecy about the food coming and this man's demise. <clears throat> so he's trying to control the people at the gate and he gets knocked down and trampled and he dies. So he sees the fact that there's food coming. He never gets to enjoy any of it. So everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted when the king came to his house. And again, there's the sign of a true prophet of God. He predicted it. He predicted it precisely, accurately, and it happened exactly how he predicted it. He said, tomorrow, this time, no problems. I mean, there'll be so much food, you won't know what to do with it all. And that's what happened. Now, what do we take away from all this? I'm going to start with verse 9 again. They said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. They have good news for the people of Samaria. They have life and death kind of news for the people of Samaria. They know they have to tell them, and they know they have to go back and say, listen, there's food, there's drink, there's anything you want. Come, come. This is where the food is. And one of my favorite definitions of evangelism, I think, comes from this story. And it's, what is evangelism? was one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find food. You know, I'm a Christian, and and my neighbor is not. I'm not better than that person. I've just been saved. And if I can share with them and they can come to Christ, then so much more better. So much the better for that. And so, again, one of those things that we, th- we think through, evangelism. Sometimes we think evangelism is a big crusade, or we think evangelism is a sermon, or evangelism is something. And, and most of the time, evangelism, <clears throat> it has to do with one person inviting another person or sharing with another person. And in that relationship, they begin to understand what's, what's going on. Interesting, and one of the things that used to happen with the Billy Graham crusades that used to go all over the place many years ago now, is that it was discovered that many of the people who came to the crusades, it wasn't that they saw an advertisement came, but it's that a friend said, hey, I'm going to go to this thing, how'd you like to come? And so friends brought friends, and that there was already that relationship, and many times they would get saved, and then you've got someone already ready to continue working with them. So that was the case in a lot of those crusades. Um, it struck me as I was reading Romans 1 this last week. There's a good section there that I love about the gospel. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What an amazing verse. And I, I'm, and, and I think sometimes when it comes to the gospel, I know when I was <clears throat> younger, a lot younger, I, I, I found it really hard to say th- things to people about the gospel. Now, if someone asked me a question, that'd be great, but just initiating a conversation, sometimes I found difficult. And I think sometimes there was that sense of, you know, what happens if they don't listen? What happens if they laugh? What happens if, and there's all these what-ifs that were going on in my head. And the reality is, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God to save people. It is the power of God to change people's lives. It's the power of God to take families and restore them. It's the power of God at work in the human heart. 
So how are we saved? Well, we believe. We believe that Jesus died and that He paid the ransom. And that's what I love. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who works really hard, right? No. Who believes. Power of God for everyone who believes. And then verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And I, I love this verse too because I think really here we have the description of in the gospel a righteousness from God. What is that? Well, we are now made righteous because we have accepted the death of Christ for us and He paid the price and He suffered the wrath of God so that I didn't have to. And He forgave me and I am righteous in God's eyes. That's the righteousness from first. To last. Now, the rest of the time is the righteousness that I gain as I'm growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. You can call it sanctification. Call it ongoing growth. Any phrase that you want to use, we're saved by grace through faith. That's a one-time deal. And then we spend a lifetime growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. That's why he said, it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith as well. And I love that whole idea of the gospel. <clears throat> it's that process and the in growing. Now again, just let me just say this one more time. I've said it a couple times already, but the truth of the gospel is best shared in the context of a relationship. There are those times when you sit down next to somebody and, you know, they just are so distraught, you say, Are you okay? And they say, No, and you're able to enter a discussion that you never expected to have. Well, that's God put you somewhere for that time. It isn't that way most of the time, but it, but if it is, praise God. The rest of the time it comes through our relationships. As we have relationships with friends and neighbors and as we make those um, overtures towards them and friendship. I'm just sharing the good news. I just had a couple thoughts here I thought I'd share real quickly before we, before we end. Um, one of the things, if we're serious about sharing the good news, is to pray for opportunities. People that I already have some kind of contact with. Okay, Lord, I'm praying for these folks. I have no idea how it's going to happen, but if you give me that opportunity, give me the words and give me the grace to, to be able to share something. Or give me the ability to invite them to something. Um, plant some seeds. It can be any kind of thing. I, it's interesting. I got to speak at the ESL class uh, last week. I was trying to think, what do, I, what do I say to these folks? They don't know me, and I, a lot of them are Catholic. They, they know very little, really, about the Bible. So how do I tell them about the reality of God's Word? I was able to do the Ephesians uh, 4, where it talks about, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And I was sharing that with them, saying, you know why I love the Bible so much? I love the Bible because it tells me that I'm supposed to speak in ways that are helpful and encouraging to others. And so I just went through that verse and said, this is why God's Word is so so wonderful and so real. It's the same thing with the Gospel. We'll be in opportunities where we can sow the seeds of some kind. Maybe it's just something like that. Hey, the Bible is great. Let me tell you why. And I share the verse and, and that's it. The other thing is to explain. You know, you had a conversation with somebody. It's ongoing. Maybe they need a little bit more information about something. Uh, and sometimes we gently nudge them. Hey, how'd you like to come to a Christmas Eve service? Or you know what? We've got a concert here coming in, in a couple of weeks. How'd you like to come and join us as we have this concert at a church? There's all kinds of things that we can do. The question is, are we interested in doing them? Are we willing to do them? And if so, then I think really it starts with, okay, God, open doors. 
As you open those doors, give me the grace to say what you want me to say. And so, I think as we see this this last uh, section about the about the beggars and the men who found the food, we need to remember that one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find food is what it's all about. And we have food. Let's share that food with those that don't. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the examples that you give us. And and I'm just so grateful for Elisha and his clear statements that he makes. And Lord, what an amazing God you are that you work in so many incredible ways. And so we just ask that as we leave here today, you would challenge us and encourage us and help us to see that... Um, you put us in that situation or that place for a reason. So help us to be aware and then give us your grace and your words to say the things that could be said. It's in your name we pray. Amen.